This flower is an antidote for... for what? Werewolfery. Lycanthrophobia is the medical term for the affliction I speak of. And do you expect me to believe that a man so afflicted actually becomes a wolf under the influence of the full moon? No. The werewolf is neither man nor wolf, but a satanic creature with the worst qualities of both. <laughs> I'm afraid, sir, that I gave up my belief in goblins, witches, personal devils, and uh, werewolves at the age of six. But that does not alter the fact that there are two cases of werewolfery known to me. And, uh, and how did these unfortunate gentlemen contract this, uh, this medieval unpleasantness? From the bite of another werewolf, these men are doomed. But for this flower, the Marifesa. What you're about to see Explain it, we cannot. Explain it, disprove it. We cannot disprove it. We simply invite you to explore with us the amazing world of the unknown. The amazing world of the unknown. Hey everybody, welcome back from what's been, I think a month and a half or something like that. I don't mm. know, it's about a month or whatever. Um, by the time this episode hits hits the feed, I have no long how it's going to be. But uh, yeah, I, I, we took a break. Um, I need to make an apology <laughs> to you up front on the air because I was just like, I'm done, I'm taking a break. And as you pointed out to me in private, I never really let you know because it just never really occurred to me because we've taken breaks here and there. And I, I think was, the term I used is that was a dick move. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> it was a dick move. I recorded uh, – we recorded our last – well, we'll go into all this at the end of the show. We'll, we'll, we'll touch on it again. So, But I wanted to get the public apology to you out of the way for not yeah. informing you that, we're, hey, we're taking a break for a little while rather than just saying, hey, everybody, we're not going to be podcasting for a little while because – I know that my feed exploded with people going, is the show over? And then you said yours did and you got texts and stuff. Oh, yeah. So we'll get a, we're going to jump into that um, after the interview tonight. Um, we've got Linda Godfrey returning to the show. And she's on here to talk about her new book, American Monsters, A History of Monster Lore, Legends, and Sightings in America. Um, we bring it up in the interview. We do not talk to her about Dogman, Werewolf, or Bigfoot in this show because we have talked to her several times about that. And for years and years, that is what she is known for. And this book, those things are in here, but she covers such a vast swath of other American folklore stories and things like that, that we wanted to talk to her about those things. And um, again, we also wanted to keep the interview uh, something fresh and different for her uh, because, uh, you know, she gets asked the same questions over and over again every show. And what happens with people that do these books, they go into what I call autopilot mode where they just kind of – they know the questions that are going to be asked and they just kind of run off on a spiel. Right. Um, and we'll talk about it a little bit more at the end of the interview. But one of the things that we try to pride ourselves on here is giving somebody something different as much as possible. So uh, again, great interview. Linda, thank you very much for coming on the show. 
we re- politely refer to her as Auntie Linda, <laughs> which she finds very funny for some reason. Uh, it's a term of endearment. We explained her off the air. No, 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 no. It's not a criticism. You know, she's but it's it's just because she's a very sweet, kind-hearted, easy person to talk to. Um, when we talk to Linda, it's not the it, it's not like we're interviewing somebody. It's like you know, she's just a very easy person to talk to, and we enjoy talking to her. Um, go ahead. She's she's just cool. She's she's a it's a joy to speak to her. I mean, it's it makes it easy. She's uh. How do you explain Linda? I mean, she's fascinating. She's a fascinating woman. And, yeah. You know, and there's a lot more. Every time we get into talking to her, there's more that we – God, we could have asked her this. We could have asked her that. And you know, now, especially during this show, she was shooting ideas for stuff for us to do later on down the road. Oh, yeah. Anyways, um, yeah, we got a lot of banter about after we do the interview. Everybody's here that's not that's new to the show isn't here to hear us talk about this right now. So we'll jump right into the interview with Linda. And we'll get everybody caught up at the other side. So we'll see you at the end of the interview. Bye-bye. We have – this is probably your third or fourth time on the show. We have returning guest Linda Godfrey. You have just released a new book called American Monsters, A History of Monster Lore, Legends, and Sighting in America. Uh, I was telling you off the air, I very, very much enjoyed this book. When, when people send us books Thank and we get them, um, I read them because I actually like to be versed on what we're going to be talking to our guests about. And I really, really enjoyed this book. I think this is one of the ones that you've written that I've enjoyed the most because there's such a variety of whacked out things in here. <laughs> so That's what I was going for. <laughs> I enjoy strange history books, and to me, this very much reads like a strange history book. Um, I've noticed in here, parkour with what you normally do, that you never in here say, this stuff is real, this is real, I believe that's real. This is just an account of legends and stories from all over the country of strange creatures. And you run the gambit in here. There is so much in this book that I, I almost literally didn't know where to start with you. You've got gargoyles. You've got the greats in here. You've got Chupacabra. You've got Bigfoot. You've got werewolves. And then you've got dinosaurs, gator men, uh, mermaids, aquatic aliens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How yeah. long have you been working on this book to get this stuff? Well, the entire thing, and, and including... Um, not just my research and writing time, but then once it went to the publisher, which uh, was Tarcher Penguin, and um, I had a great editor there to whom I owe a great deal of, of uh, thanks who helped me you know, go through it. Um, then you start with the, the rewritings and the re-researching and, and all that kind of thing. So over all that time uh, from when I began it to when it finally came out was uh, two, a good two years, and that's the longest I've taken on any book. But I wanted this book to be something that would show the American public um, the breadth and depth and scope of the number of anomalous creature sightings that people are experiencing um, in the Americas. And I mean, of course, this occurs world over, but if I tried to write about everyone in the whole world, you know, the book would have had to have been, you know, five times as thick, and it's already way over the word limit that they had originally given me. I kept saying, oh, I found this other thing. Can I please just make it a little longer? You know, and, and they, they were great about that. Um, very great publishers to work with. So, 
it, you know, there's there's a matter of just amassing the material and then trying to whip it into some sort of edible content where people can, um, you know, bite off a, a, a chewable bit and get that down before they go on to the next one and where they aren't overwhelmed by just, um, you know, if, if you go to like a buffet and that's, that's why at buffets they have the desserts in one area, the salads in one, mm-hmm. you know, the main course in another because if otherwise you're just overwhelmed. And, and so I divided it into creatures that generally are seen uh, in the air and then in water and then on land to give it some sort of of structure, you know, that, that people could see. But the the reason for that is because most people, and, and even I think some cryptozoologists, you know, don't really uh, come to this realization, but um, the, the majority of, of people think, well, you know, there's a couple funny monsters that have appeared here and there. Um, you know, there, there was a werewolf once somewhere and, you know, and then maybe I heard about the chupacabras and, and of course everybody knows about Bigfoot and they think that's about all there is. And they think maybe there's two or three sightings that happened and it's easily dismissed. But when you go and see how many people have seen so many different things, um, over quite a great period of time, I mean, you know, reaching way back into, um, not just the settlement of this country by Europeans, but you go back into the the ancient native tales and you realize they were seeing things too, you know. So I, I just wanted people to have that understanding, hoping that people would get a little more curious, a little bit more open-minded and receptive. And, of course, I couldn't get everything in there. I mean, again, I was going to say, you've got a lot in here, like a whole lot, and – what I really like about it is that it is all American stuff. It is – and it's like you just said. The Like I've heard – which we're going to go into in a minute. I've heard the, the giant bird stories and you only hear the one or two major ones. On our, on our right. last most recent interview, we, we covered uh, uh, giant bird sightings and we only covered one or two stories on there. Those are the big ones and I had no idea that there was just so many of these stories. And right. as with everything else in this book – I had no idea. I'm actually flipping through the pages right now. I had no idea there was so many. Like, I, I had no idea there was more than just one gator story. You know, <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> the, the, the amount of how many of these stories that are out there was was amazing. Um, it's kind of, it's as far as the book collection that I have, it's the definitive American monster book for the most part. You know, with the oh, amount of stuff you. that's in here. Well, it's just you've got so much. Yeah. Um, well, I, I tried, and like I said. It's still, you know, and I try and explain this in the introduction, it's still not everything. I mean, and I know people, every once in a while somebody comes and says, well, how come you didn't put, you know, the red-eared um, nipper snapper of uh, Walla Walla or, you yeah. know, and, and I mean, there's there's going to be plenty of things that, I, that I've that i missed, but um, I tried to just give uh, the ones that I had the best, either the best research on or the best, um, I, you know, I tried to do when I could, my original reports that haven't been published, you know, from people that write me. But um, there's, no, I don't think there's anyone who could do a book about all this entire range of monsters without going into, um, you know, archives and borrowing from other kind-hearted researchers. Mm-hmm. You know, be, I mean, nobody can have all the big bird stories and all the lizard man stories and all the Bigfoot stories. You, you kind of have to. Well, which I will say, you don't borrow a whole lot from other – you do borrow some from other people, but not a whole lot. Um, 
a lot of what I see in here appears to be firsthand research. And when you do borrow from people, you make it you make a note of it where you got the where you got it from. You're not just pulling a story from one book and retransposing it to the to yours. Right. And if I can, I go back to the sources. You know, like for the Lizard Man of Bishopville, um, the the original witness who was a young man at the time is dead, but I was able to get hold of the newspaper man um, in South Carolina who broke the story and talked to him about uh, or am I. Am I mixing that that up with a different story? Maybe that. <laughs> oh, maybe that was. You know what? That was with the bat squatch that I talked to the original newspaper man, who, um, excuse me, who, who uh, first wrote, uh, you know, what that young man saw. But I, I did go back to, uh, you know, for the lizard man, I went back to original newspaper accounts and, you know, try to go back to the original sources, um, the blue dogs, chupacabras, so-called chupacabras of. Of Texas, I uh, you know tracked down Dr. Phyllis Canyon and talked to her personally. You know, uh, she was gracious enough to lend me some of her photos. So, you know, even I I try whenever possible to go back to the witness or to somebody who knew them. It isn't always possible. Sometimes um, the story I would want to use wouldn't have that much background to it. You know, even uh, from the the researcher in question. But um, yeah, I think there's a pretty good mix in there of, well, of both things. let's get started. Um, one of the things I told you before we recorded, I was telling you through Facebook, is I, I didn't want to ask you the same questions that everybody has asked you over and over and over again, because I'm sure you've done a dozen interviews at this point, and over the years, I'm, I'm sure you've been tired of being asked the same things, which means I'm not going to ask you about Bigfoot, I'm not going to ask you about werewolves, and I'm not going to ask you about dogmen. I think at this point, you're probably tired to death of discussing those topics. <laughs> Well, um, I never get tired. You can't get tired of Dogman and Bigfoot. I mean. Yeah, but you can only hear the same <laughs> but, question so many times. Um, right. You said you wanted to talk about the giant bird sightings. That um, that was one of the things that you said you've gotten a lot of reports and stuff on. And that's the first uh, chapter in your book. So let's start there and we'll go from there because there's a lot of different stuff that we want to talk to you about. Let's start with the giant bird sightings. Where do we go on that one? Um Big Claw was one that I found interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I started out with one that hasn't been reported anywhere, which um, happened up in northern Wisconsin, and I it's called the the Web Lake Big Bird, and this was um, to me a really amazing sighting and worthy of starting out the book for several reasons. Well, one of them was that I was able to actually go to the site, meet the person right there, measure the road. Look at what um, look at the place where he saw the, the creature and all that kind of thing. Um, the second reason was this man is a very very credible witness. Um, it was daylight. He's riding a bicycle. He wasn't you know speeding by in a car. He's a successful retail businessman who just happened to be vacationing in an area um, that his his wife's relatives often went to, and he's pedaling along on this beautiful summer day, looks over in the field and sees this immense, immense bird standing in the grass. And this guy is, John Boldwan is his name, a very nice man. He stands over six feet tall and he could see where this uh, creature was standing and could see how tall the grass was. And so he had an immediate sense of how tall it had to be, and he knew it was quite a bit taller than than he was. And he was so excited, he just went wading into the field after it, <laughs> and and which you know he he thought better of in a minute because he said he got halfway into the field, and then he thought, what if it's 
guarding a nest, you know, and, and the closer he got, the bigger he realized that it was. And, you know, as I said, the grass came up to a certain point on him and, and only covered a certain amount of, of the bird's feet. So he could see that this thing was truly gigantic. And just about the time that he realized he might have done a dumb thing, the bird turns around and looks right at him with this big beady bird eye. And, <laughs> you know, he just about died on the spot. But luckily, rather than going after him, he said it started flapping its wings. And so... First of all, he had a view of it standing. Then he got to see it actually moving and trying to take off. And he said it, it took it some effort. You know, it had, he said its wings were sort of like billowing, trying to get the air under them so that it could get a lift off. And it finally did and it took off. And he watched it wheel around and then take off down this same road that he had been bicycling on. And it, it was quite low at first because it took it a while to gain altitude. And he said he could see that its wingspan was the same width as the road. Oh. And, yeah, and I was able to, I had my trusty tape measure with me, and we measured the road. And uh, being a little country asphalt, it kind of varied between 18 and 22 feet, but it was closer to 20 at the spot where he, you know, thought that he had seen it going over. And he watched it flapping away, um, you know, with air billowing under its wings. Uh, it was a feathered bird. It wasn't something like, you know, an ancient uh, pterosaur or anything else. It was a feathered bird, kind of a curved beak, but longer, um, closer. He said it, it wasn't like any bird that he could identify species-wise, but it sounded more like it was closer to some kind of stork-like thing or maybe be halfway between a stork and a raptor, you know, something that just shouldn't be. And he knew that it was something that shouldn't be. It was, um, you know, just flabbergasting to him. And not only that, he knew that a few miles down that road, there was a very small airport. And he said this thing was as big as a small plane. And he couldn't believe that they wouldn't have had it on their radar and was, you know, watching anxiously to see if rockets were going to be shot at it or, oh. you know, something was going to happen. And he couldn't ever find anyone that would admit to or um, say that they had also seen it. But um, this was, you know, most people who see the large birds, um, even when they see them fairly close, they're looking at them against the backdrop of the sky where it's yeah. very, very difficult to gauge the size because you don't have anything uh, of a known size to compare it to. But he saw it not only on the ground where it was in a place where he could compare the size, but then the action of it taking off. So he knew how um, you know it, its structure worked and then to see it in the air. So um, it, it's a very unusual sighting and a very, you know, very detail-rich, very credible witness. And I think you just have to stop and say, okay, what, what the heck was that? You know, yeah, it's, you've got written in the book that the wings were something like waves on the water as it was trying to gain gain altitude and flap its wings. That the the wings didn't flap quite right. He says that um, it was struggling to gain altitude, like it wasn't it it it, right. it, it was out of place the way it flew. Even every even the way that it flew wasn't like a normal bird because no. it was so vast. Yeah, and he said it had silvery gray feathers, no visible markings. Um, you know, it just didn't sound like anything that I'd really heard of myself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was just, um, yeah, he compared it to the size of a Piper Cub 
flying over the trees. Jeez. That's a big bird. Can you imagine yeah. the bird droppings from that thing? I <laughs> <laughs> hate to be underneath. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. where I go with this. <laughs> oh, and, and you can see, you know, there's a picture. He let me take his picture pointing down the road so you can see exactly where it happened right next to the, the, um, the field. And he didn't feel it was a phantom. You know, he said, I know it was an actual animal because he... He could just see so much of the movement, you know, and, and uh, it wasn't disappearing or fading or morphing. It was um, solidly occupying this airspace. See, that's the thing with a lot of these big bird things. Yeah, it is. It's, it's big. Um, a lot of times, it's like you said, when people see these things, they're seeing them against the backdrop of a sky or something like that. So the best you can do is pull out like a quarter at arm's length and say, well, it was as big as this at arm's length away. Right, right. But it leaves a lot of room for a misinterpretation of it could be a condor, an eagle, it you know, could be an albatross. There are so many other things it could be. Rarely do people actually see these things on the ground or somewhat that close. Um, so mm. that is a rare sighting. Were there any other sightings of this or was he the only person that saw it? Um, he's the only person that I was able to find in that area, you know, in that time frame. And he's searched and looked for other, uh, you know, descriptions of sightings like that in that area and hasn't uh, been able to find one either. But, um, it is evidently a place that's attractive to other large birds because it's very close to, um, a, a bird sanctuary wildlife area, uh, the Crex Meadows, and um, which is very much inhabited by large cranes. And, you know, and he, and he said he looks at those things and just sees how inadequate they are. Even, even the, uh, the whooping crane can be five feet tall, but the wingspan is nowhere near. It's got a big red crown on it, you know, and um, all kind, both of the, the whooping crane and the sandhill have distinctive markings. It would have been very easy for him to identify them at that close range. All right. Let's move on to – let's move on to the bat squatches. Just because of the sound of that, I have to move Everybody on Everybody loves so we, the bat squatch. You know? Are we moving into more mammalian things now or – we're going to move there eventually. <laughs> um, since you're from Wisconsin and you're a Wisconsin native, let's start with an easy one for you, which is Wisconsin's man bat. Right. So, yeah, that that was one that was one of my original um, investigations. I, I was able to be there within uh, um, a little over a week after, right after the incident occurred. What is it? Was it a, a giant <laughs> – I mean, when you hear, when you hear man bat, you know, yeah. I mean, the images of Mothman and stuff immediately come to mind, but this, this isn't described as a Mothman kind of creature. No, no. It was like something with huge bat wings, at least a 10-foot wingspan, but yet um, kind of a furry humanoid in the center. Not super bat-like. Uh, the, the witnesses described it as more like a wolf with fangs that was looking at them. But it was um, a man in his 50s and his 25-year-old son, who were both musicians. They'd been in the city in Fond du Lac, or excuse me, in La Crosse, um, practicing their band, and they said they were not imbibing in any kind of mind-altering <laughs> substance, even though they were musicians. Jazz musicians? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they, you know, there's always that stigma. But no, they said they were perfectly sober. Driving home, they lived uh, actually in an area. 
um, north of, of town, a, a more rural, smaller town. And they were driving up this hill, and something came flying right at the windshield of their truck. They thought it was going to hit the truck. It got that close. And that's why they had such a good look at it, because it was just in front of the windshield when all of a sudden it emitted this piercing shriek and just went straight up into the air and kind of sailed off into some nearby trees. And the thing made uh, the son, who was driving, immediately sick. He had to pull over and throw up. And and the older man was sick in bed for like two weeks from it. And, wow. I, you know, I've speculated whether it might have been the, the sound that did it or who, you know, who really knows. Maybe just the fear itself can do that to you as well because they, they both were really um, pretty nervous about it. But um, when I went there to investigate a week or so later, um, I believe that it was October, um, about the same time of year, and would have been 2006, and uh, it had been fairly cold during that past week. And we went up and stopped the car where it had almost hit him, and he pointed to some trees and said, well, that's where it went. You know, it sailed right over into that group of trees. So we go over and look. I was going to say, let me guess, you went chasing right after it, didn't you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the thing was, there was a dead, uh, there was a deer carcass right where he had seen this thing go. And the deer carcass had been dropped into the grasses. It hadn't been dragged. There was no sign of, you know, the grass being disturbed around it. So it could have been a poacher. There was a plastic bag lying nearby, but um, it had just some strange parts taken to it. The the skin on the back had been pulled away from it. Uh, Kind of gruesome. I had some good pictures of it. Um, And one (laughs) of the people with us was uh, a deer hunter, and she said that it, she thought it was strange that the parts missing, you know, would have been taken by um, a human and the good parts left. So it's it's hard saying whether that was just coincidence or not. But the thing is, it might well have been there already the, the, the week earlier, and that's what this creature was attracted to and what it was zooming, zooming over to have a look at. The description of it sounds more like a giant flying squirrel than, than anything. Squirrel. <laughs> Except really giant. Yeah, really giant squirrel. <laughs> and, with a, and with a wolf-like uh, face and... and um, fangs and features, you know, that was what, what scared them. The other thing was, though, um, that that really gave this story some real legs for me, besides wings, um, was, <laughs> was that um, I, there were other witnesses around town that had contacted me. There's, um, La Crosse is located on uh, the confluence of the, the Mississippi and the Black Rivers, and there's a, a river island called French Island that's connected to the town, um, has this uh, little nuclear power plant on it, and people live out there. And a couple of people who live down on this island um, reported seeing something very similar to it in their backyards right around that same time frame. So there were other people who were reporting seeing the same thing, and then also, uh, th- this gentleman that was the witness said that um, he felt like for weeks afterwards that it had followed him home and he would experience things like something pounding on the side of his house and his dogs would whimper and cower instead of barking. 
and there was never anything there. It would pound on the door. Um, you know, he seemed to be bothered by it. And he felt, he saw it in his backyard when he went out for a smoke one night on his back porch. So, um, so let this be a lesson to everybody living in Wisconsin. Do not feed the man bat because it'll follow you home. <laughs> yeah. And then you've got a man bat as a pet. See, uh, the, with all the gun nuts, how come no one's shooting at these things? Well, the ironic thing about the man bat is that there was a gun club across the road oh, and, in, and in from it. You know, so um, I, I'm sure that people had plenty of... of uh, Chances, if if it was appearing to anyone else, usually I figure for every report that I do get, there are probably ten or more that people just quietly sit on because they either don't just don't want to talk about it, they don't want to admit it, they don't want to be made fun of, or whatever. So if I got you know at least three witness sightings, there were probably thirty, I imagine. Oh sure, uh, I mean at this point I. At this point in my life, I'm like, you know what? I already know I'm going to hell, so it's either go big or go home. <laughs> so there's no sense <laughs> in holding go. on to anything yeah, but, I have. But a lot of – exactly, exactly. But no, I just felt lucky that he was able to uh, locate me. And the thing is, I mean, these creatures are not just seen in Wisconsin. They're seen from Tacoma to Pennsylvania and wow. parts and parts south, you know. They're, um, that's what really blew my mind about the flying things was until I started – really, really digging in and investigating them for this book, I was just astounded at how widespread there were and how many there were and the great variety of them. You know, and people like to say, well, maybe there's just some pocket of prehistoric creature that um, managed to survive. But the thing is, you would have to then presume that there were lots and lots and lots of types of prehistoric creatures. Yeah, and you would need mated pairs that, and things like that. Not just one or two. Not, yeah, um, not only of the same species, but of when you you have people seeing things that look like giant storks, like giant raptors, like giant pterosaurs, like giant uh, bat-like things, moth-like things. Um, that's a lot of different prehistoric species to be surviving in pockets. Yeah, right. yeah, the flying manta rays was another one that I was going to ask you about. I guess I'll bring that up because it kind of ties into this. I've only heard of one, maybe two manta, flying manta ray stories. Even in the cryptozoological world, that's something that's not – it's kind of brought up in passing and you'll hear reports from every great once in a while. But you managed to cover them in this book. Um, the idea of seeing a flying manta ray flying over the road – because these, these things aren't small either. The reported is very big, Correct. Um, well, they vary. You know, some are smaller, but I mean, some have been just extremely large too. So they vary in size, and people. I, you know, I just took a fast peek at this because it seems to be kind of a newly emerging um, category of of cryptids or unknown things. And um, I, Lon Strickler with the Phantoms and Monsters blog, I call. Manta Ray Central because he mm -hmm. seems to be the one that had really started um, started to get these reports from people and and I like to give the props where you know where they belong but you're talking about not over like the Pacific Ocean but above a highway near Hebron Kentucky mm -hmm. yeah yeah <laughs> Lon speaks you know, about him quite a bit um, well there are there are a few others that have been um, that have come forth, and I've gotten one or two of of them um, 
So it's, but not not a real lot. So it's one that people say, this is something new. We're going to keep an eye on it. And everybody's scratching their heads over it. Nobody really <laughs> has a great idea of what these things could be. Why not? I mean, there's, was it, uh, was it Edgar Allan Poe who wrote the story Terror in the Heights? Is that who wrote it? The guy know. goes up. Guy goes up in a plane, and there, there's creatures living above in the stratosphere, mm-hmm. and it ends up taking the plane out. Yeah, and it's it, it's reminiscent of that story. And I'm like, all right, well, why not? Sure. There's someone on the way. Some thing. I'm sorry. What were you saying? You can expect to see a man bat creature. That implies, you know, a man bat. Okay, bat. That implies. That, but it's like, yeah. yeah, when you're seeing a flying manta ray, that's like saying, yeah, I was driving down a road and there was a shark swimming next to me on the freeway yesterday. It was the craziest thing. Like, what? Yeah. It's you like know? Sharknado week. But <laughs> exactly, yeah. I didn't want <laughs> to know, say that. <laughs> things, things really out of place. And the thing I mean, is, that would ma- really bend your mind. You're like, it's a yeah. flying manta ray. <laughs> Where because is it going to land? The manta rays can just kind of launch themselves out of the water and skim a few feet above the water. For a short period, you know, yeah, when not they're a state. In the, but but yeah, not 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 over a highway, but over a, an ocean where they belong, you know. So and they and they do look pretty much exactly like manta rays, and of course people are thinking, well, UFOs. Maybe there's a new form of UFOs, and then you have to go. Well, they didn't look like machines. Are UFOs living entities? Some people think that's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, why not? Well, I mean, all things being equal, there's really no. There's no difference in, you know, I mean, we know water's more viscous than air is, but I mean, with all things being equal, there's nothing that wouldn't, no, nah, it, 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 no. It ain't going to work. <laughs> I know where you're going with this. It ain't going to fly. <laughs> if, they were, if they were something smaller or, you know, made out of a lighter material, mm-hmm. then perhaps. Dude, I, I mean, start seeing flying piranhas. I'm checking out. <laughs> I would love to see a flying man. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Want to get in contact with the show or listen to back episodes? It's easy. Go to www.projectarchivist.com. On the right side of the page, you'll find links to our archives, as well as links on how to get onto our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. If you want to leave a voicemail for us, it's 734-681-0459. Yes, we do listen to all of them. Or if you want to talk to Lobo directly, you can call 203-212-9975. Yes, that will in fact put you in touch with his cell phone. If he's available, he will take your call and talk to you. If you're just looking to send us an email, you can do that at projectarchivist at gmail.com. Don't forget to look for us on iTunes under the podcast section, or you can stream us right to your phone with the Stitcher Android app for free. If you like motorcycles and you like comedy, perhaps you should try the Wheel Nerds podcast. Stop that. What what are you doing? I'm doing my announcer voice. It's proven super effective. It's stupid. Nope. We're the Wheel Nerds. Shut up. We're the Wheel Nerds. We're a weekly-ish comedy motorcycle podcast where we talk about everything two wheels and a bunch of stuff that isn't. Give us a listen at wheelnerds.com, iTunes, or Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are sold. Ha! 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 I'm going to stop doing this now, my throat hurts. Hey, congratulations. You're already listening to one of the best podcasts on the internet, Project Archivist, with Rojan and Lobo, a couple of guys I've known for a long time. They put on a great show, and so do I. It's called Sword and Scale, and it deals with true crime, horrible things that have happened in this world that we live in. 
with real people that live amongst us. In fact, what we say on the show is that the worst monsters are real. And I think if you listen to some of our stories, you too will agree. So head on over to swordandscale.com after the episode and give us a listen. And now, back to the show. Um, all right, let's move on to something even weirder. How about the flying heads and the owl people? Yeah, that's that's kind of baffling. And that's one that's got... Um, you know, tentacles into the into the past with native legends because um, they had there are different native tribes that had legends of the flying heads that would come out of the night and get you. And of course, the proposition is that these uh, these flying heads were actually giant owls coming at people, where all they could see coming at them was this big round owl face. You know, and of course the owls have the predator-style eyes facing forward, and, and they might have seen um, the wings sticking out from the head and assumed that was hair, that kind of thing. So you get something that looks like a flying head, but um, you know it's hypothesized that they were, really were some sort of owl, um, maybe even a, a, a giant ex- now extinct species or something like that. So, but there's also a tradition of owl men called the stikini, which are generally um, not good things to run into either. So, (laughs) well, none of this stuff is really, yeah. (laughs) Owls are harbingers to begin with, so. None of this stuff is good to run into anyways, so. um, Right. But there's, there is something called an eagle owl that um, is, it's the, the European eagle owl, and they are very, very large. They're not supposed to be here, but they're very popular pets. Um, like I think England has like 2,000 registered in just England alone, and not everybody registers them. And I can't imagine that many people keeping these giant eagle owls as pets, but supposedly, you know, that's, if you look at the registry, um, it's hard to, to refute that. But... Um, there have been uh, known recorded escapes of the eagle owl. There is one that happened in April 2006, um, and the Scotsman, the headline was, Lock up your pets, eagle owl on the loose. Um, these are three foot tall, have wingspans of five feet. They can carry, around, carry away cats, dogs, other small pets, presumably you know, babies or, or tiny children. So, you know, you have to really look them up. But there was, um, Mark Hall has written in his Thunder book called titled Thunderbirds, um, has suggested this extinct species of gigantic owl, which uh, he calls it Big Hoot, which I think is a great name. <laughs> and the, the known giant owl, owl species, Orno, or, Ornomegalonyx oteroi, Lived in Not Cuba. Bad. Well done. <laughs> Very well. Thank you. Lived in Cuba as recently as 10,000 years ago, which isn't, you know, in terms of, I mean, a lot of the extinct species were 6 million years ago. So 10,000 years in terms of, a drop of in the species is just a drop in the bucket. Right. And this this owl, though, was three and one half feet tall. So that's really only a half foot taller than the, than the eagle owl. And supposedly it could fly only short distances like uh, wild turkeys do. And I don't know if you've ever seen – we have lots of wild turkeys where I live. And every time 
every time I see one take off, it reminds me of just a, a big elephant trying to get off the ground, you know, the, the effort that it takes. So it's probably kind of a good comparison when you're trying to imagine them launching themselves. But um, I don't think that these giant owls jibe very well with what people are describing they see um, with these giant birds, you know, when you've got a wingspan of 10 to 20 feet, which is what most of them are, that's far larger than yeah. <laughs> these actual owls and, and raptors and things. And when you go to descriptions of the mm. Mothman, um, the point, you know, Point Pleasant, West Virginia, those descriptions are really sort of all over the map. I mean, one of the major witnesses, Linda Scarberry, um, described it as sort of a humanoid with feathers and, and then the big, bright, glowing eyes. And other people then described it as this necklace thing. Or Yeah, nobody ever really th- described it with a face or a head, though. It was always just a body with glowing eyes. Most of the time. But there were, uh, I mean, some some that really deviated. I mean, there were, there's kind of, if you read all of the different descriptions, and I think uh, the late John Keel said that he had interviewed at least 100 people. You know, and, and had a fairly wide range of descriptions of this thing. So that makes you wonder, too, why why that would be. And at the same time, there were also lots of UFO sightings in that area, many, many. Um, you know, he described it as just being almost infested with UFOs and, and the men in black phenomena. So you had all these anomalous things going on at the same time. That's something else I wanted to ask you here. Um when you were talking to people and researching this stuff, did mentions of UFOs come up a lot, or was it pretty much just I saw creature A and creature B, and was there any other strangeness associated with people seeing these creatures, like like you had with Point Pleasant and things like along those lines? Um, that does seem to happen. Um, yeah, there there's an area in the middle of the state around Toma where um, I have some witnesses who saw what they described as like a gargoyle and they had also seen what sounded like the wolfman and they had had seen uh, UFOs in in the area so this idea Kiel's idea of the window area where he uh, envisions it as a window opening between our world and a world in some other dimension and things are coming through you know, and maybe going back and forth. And that's why you'll see the UFOs, the dogmen, the Bigfoot, the big birds all in one certain area. And in fact, one of my previous books, um, I think it's Hunting the American Werewolf, I noticed that in southeastern Wisconsin, um, there's a place that I call the Jefferson Square of Weirdness, where there's about 13 square miles that uh, where it's bounded by things like ancient pyramids of Aztalan, um, the, the Kelmarine State Park, you've got dogman sightings, Bigfoot sightings, big bird sightings. Um, there's a, a lake that's supposed to have a water monster in it, at least one of those. I mean, it's got everything within this 13-square-mile mi- segment. And then you've got that, you know, all the, the occult associations with the number 13. And right, wow. smack, right smack in the center of it is the um, place where one of the earliest, I think it's a dogman sighting, it, it has some overtones of Bigfoot, but um, it's known as the Gadara Beast because it was um, this Catholic institution that took care of um, variously challenged people, and the Night Watchman 
came upon this creature digging in a Native American burial mound. Oh, yeah, and there are lots of burial mounds around there, too. <laughs> and it stood up and looked at him, and he saw it two nights in a row. And the second night, um, it uttered what he thought sounded like the word Gadara, which is a region um, in in the uh, the New Testament where Jesus was supposed to have um, expelled a legion of demons from this man, and they went into the herd of swine, which then ran into the sea. So there's, and that's directly dead center of this 13 square mile area. So it's just really strange how there are these certain areas that just seem to be attractants for everything anomalous. All right, so since we're kind of like toying around with, you, you mentioned Indian burial mounds and, and whatnot, I can't let this go, uh, <laughs> go by at all, because I, I, we did, I did an episode of our spinoff show of the spark on Wendigos. Mm -hmm. So please enlighten us on your information on Wendigos. Well, the Wendigos are something that um, are, I think, probably misunderstood a lot. Part of it is popular culture. Um, they're often portrayed, some people believe that they're the same thing as the Dogman or the Bigfoot. And most of the tribes, it's, it's something that's been around for a long time. It's most prevalent in the northern tribes, especially going up into Canada um, and the northern tier states of, of the U.S., where you had the problem for many, many uh, millennia of very hard winters and very um, meager stores of, of meat, and then some people succumbing to cannibalism, and then you have to deal as a society with this uh, phenomenon and figure out how to handle the people and what's wrong with the people. And so there are, uh, I've got one book um, from a man who lived with um, Native Americans around the shores of Lake Michigan um, back in the very early 1800s, who made kept a very good diary of all the the different tales. And, and he said there were several different kinds of Wendigo. There was the kind where it was just an, a tribesman that had somehow tasted human flesh and then became, um, they'll describe them as sort of crazed and they get sort of extra strength, human strength, and, you know, they're constantly sneaking around trying to uh, kill somebody to eat. And those are commonly recognized as humans that are sort of inhabited by the window, Wendigo spirit. But then there's the giant Wendigo creatures, which are 22 feet tall and stomp around in the forests and they could wear um, pine branches or pine trees for snowshoes. You know, they get sort of Paul Bunyan-like. And at their core, at their heart, is always, if, they, if you can melt them down, oh, and they could also be... Um, defeated by throwing feces at them, which is probably oh, something that's easily nice. obtained after somebody sees them, you know, in the woods. So, so there is that defense, but when you finally get managed to get one and melt it down, um, there's this core of uh, a human that they find, the little shriveled bit of the human that's still left inside. So um, it's something that I, th I think it's it's really hard to separate that as just a monster on its own from this um, basis that it has in lore and legend and, and uh, belief of these uh, northern tribes. Nice. 
Well, I have a I have a Wendigo tattooed on my leg. So. There you go. <laughs> and which does it look like? Oh, uh, it's it looks more like the uh, the nature spirit. It's a yeah. it's an upright stag, and its antlers come out, and it has the leaves growing off the antlers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I've seen that one. Um, yeah, I think and I I think that I drew a, a little. Um, illustration of it, I believe. I th- sometimes it's hard to remember what I did and what I didn't do. But um, the one, yeah, I, it's on page uh, 254. That's more of the, it's got the horns and the skeletal body, and mm-hmm. you can see it carrying a pine tree. That's more the the, the Canadian oh, yeah, northern. Uh, yeah, I'm looking at it now. It looks more like yeah. a skeleton than anything. That's right. not way two foot tall because it's got a pine tree in its hand. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's that's uh, more the the real traditional one that uh, you know according to my own research yeah see the thing is with with I've, I've been fascinated with Wendigo since I was a little boy and uh, I the first time I read uh, Algernon Blackwood's story the Wendigo it was just I was hooked mm. because it's it's an older story it's from the late 1800s mm-hmm. and it's just you know it, it's it gives a it gives a, a a different view of the same mythology. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's something that stalks the 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 cold dead woods of the great north, and it turns you, it changes you. And if even if it even if it relinquishes control of you, what's left over is no longer a human. Right. Yeah. That's and that's very much in conformity. And again, you know, there's. The, the different tribes and nations all sort of have their own versions. There's there's no one right version. You know, I try and just Oh, yeah. It's just, that's the, the beauty of it. It also yeah. speaks to, like, you know, not eating, not being a cannibal, because that's one of the legends that goes right. with it. If you eat human right. flesh, you become one. You become one. You become possessed by the yeah. Wendigo spirit at the very least. Yeah. It's such a good, it's such a good, uh, you know, a, a, a grounding point of myth legend and you know human society all right. at the same thing and and it go and it's not from you know the european settlers that's one of the huge things i, I i'm fascinated when you write about and you talk about in particular the way you deliver your thoughts and your your um understanding of the native american legends and how the natives see it it just I, the way you write it and the way you you talk about it is it just I could listen to you all day. Oh, thank you. Well, <laughs> you know, I, I I really try to have some respect for for their traditions and for um, remembering that you know their their stories are not just something to capitalize on as the next monster of the day, make a movie mm-hmm. about it. They're um, kind of sacred things in their own right, and they actually. There's a tradition in many of the tribes that these stories are living creatures in their own right. And mm-hmm. like when they start telling it, they'll say something like, well, my story was walking along, you know, and then the story eventually develops into describing the, the creature or whatever. But these, these are, the stories themselves are living things to them. And it's, it's sort of, that's a, a place the Western mind doesn't usually go. You know, right. it's, it's hard for us to conceptualize this. I did also think, though, that, I don't know if you remembered, there was one incident that Canadian newspapers were actually calling a modern Wendigo incident, where yeah. there was a man on a bus. Yep. Yeah. The yeah. guy cut the guy's head off. I think we eating. covered that yeah. story, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, he was later diagnosed as schizophrenic, but um, 
no less than an ethno-historian, which is somebody who specializes in the you know native tales, um, claimed in the Toronto Sun article that he saw a lot of connections between the Wendigo tradition and then what happened in, in the bus. Really? And, and he had actually um, been quoted a, a week and a half earlier in the Sun um, on his knowledge of, of that ancient story. So then they came back to him for another quote when something came out of it. And I don't know, uh, he wasn't accused of inspiring it or anything, but the headline said, bus beheading similar to Wendigo phenomenon. See, I, when, I, when, when I read that, I was like, mm, no, this is just a mentally unstable person. Right. Uh, it, it, when I read it, it was like, it was a slap in the face. I'm like, this is just another derogatory remark on on a on a a timeless tale mm-hmm. that they're just. I'm like, okay, great. So does that mean you know every any time somebody you know was Jeffrey Dahmer's a Wendigo, right? You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, right. No, yeah, I, I see exactly what you're saying, and and I agree. The only thing that stops you is well, the source of it is not some sensationalistic sort of 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 um, you know, newspaper rag, it was the ethno-historian who right, drew the right, connections. Right. <laughs> so that's where you kind of go, whoa, this is really weird. Yeah, absolutely. Linda, I want to ask you about one more thing, and then we're going to let you go. But since Lobo is from Connecticut, I have to ask you about the Connecticut frog folk. Um, there are so- similarities in that story. When you wrote Weird Michigan, you also brought up a similar story that we have up here. So I guess start by telling us about the frog folk because it relates to the melon heads, I believe. Yeah, kind of in a way. And the the main way that they relate is that you know I think they're both probably urban urban legends, mm-hmm. and similar to uh, Wisconsin's pig people. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. I was going to tie into that too. <laughs> yeah, because it seems like um, every state has this legend in some variation. Yeah, there's always this mutated or weird or throwback or animal-faced sort of um, reclusive tribe of people that becomes legendary in the state. And um, they were not really believed to be part frog, but um, what they were believed to be was an inbred family of what somebody called, this was a 1998 Fairfield County Weekly article called them large-eyed freaks. Not their words, not mine. And um, (laughs) it was a mysterious family living together in a decrepit compound not far from Bethel, Connecticut's center. And that it's when, called Innsmouth. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds yes. like the deep ones. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And people would see them milling about, spilling out of open doors, and performing various bizarre, comma, unspecified acts. And they even venture into town from time to time, we hear, for the occasional shopping trip. Now, in Marshfield, Wisconsin, I was there investigating a Bigfoot sighting, and people ever, all over town, I'd be talking to them, and they'd say, well, you know, we have pig people here. <laughs> and I'd say, really? And they'd say, yeah, they come into town, and they shop at the Salvation Army store, and you can see their footprints. And sure enough, there are these little black painted hoof-like um, marks on the sidewalk in front of the Salvation Army store. But everybody, either they've all got this kind of town conspiracy to soberly tell newcomers that they've got pig people 
you know, or they actually believe it, you know, and they'd say, yeah, they, they live south of town and they'd point out where it was. And, and that's the same sort of thing that I see going on with the Connecticut frog folk. And then with the melon heads in Michigan, in fact, I was just, I was just there this, this week in Saugatuck, uh, Michigan, where the melon heads are supposed to live and took some pictures of the felt mansion. If you go to, um, my Linda S. Godfrey face, page you can see a couple of my, my pictures of the the felt mansion but this according to legend um it, it was a beautiful old estate that was built by a man who invented uh what was sort of the first real calculator it could be argued and there were different buildings and when he died it was given over to be a catholic seminary for a while and supposedly there was supposed to be an asylum on the estate where hydrocephalic children, that's children who were born with water on the brain, and so they have very enlarged heads, were taken care of. And at some point, the children escaped into the woods and became feral. And so you had these large-headed children that would, and, pe- and then later people that would come charging out of the woods at you and, you know, try and... Um, you know, mess with you and I, I don't know, throw <laughs> leaves at you or something, you know, but, um, leaves. Suppose, <laughs> Go ahead. I, I'm, to, I'm looking at those woods this week, you know, I was walking, walked up to the woods and, and trying to envision these feral water headed people, you know, doing something ferocious. And I, I couldn't see where they could find anything but leaves for weapons. You know, it's just, um, Ordinary woods. And then what do they do? They this, assaulted me with leaves. Place. But you know, in, in Wisconsin, about less than an hour from my house, we have the haunchies also, which is kind of a similar thing. And they're supposed to be little people who come out of the, and they live on Mystic Lane, no less, in, oh, um, in um, Muskego on, on a lake. And their, their home, the, the part of it where they were supposed to live has now been developed. So they're supposedly no longer there. But I recently had a witness contact me and tell me all about having an encounter with them. And they're supposed to um, come out of the cornfield with little pitchforks um, oh, running it and base, miniature baseball bats running at you. And <laughs> oh I suppose God. they'd probably take your kneecaps out because that's the height they would be. It's but supposedly, <laughs> supposedly, yeah, Pukwudgies, very much yep. like the they, – they're very uh, – they, they resemble a lot – both Native American and European folktales of these mischievous, small-sized beings that would, you know, they're kind of like fairy folk. Like if the you Picts. look, if you look at the stories, yeah, the Picts. Um, you can find the, the Native American water people. There's all kinds of parallels to them, um, but you can never really get right down to any actual historic connections with them. However, um, I do think that. There's some likelihood that because you have these um, colonies all over the United States in Florida, they're called Midgetville. Um, there's other names out in New Jersey where you have uh, records of circuses having winter quarters and that kind of thing. Um, when the circuses end and the the little people who are part of the, the cir- especially older circuses, um, they have to go somewhere. And I do know that there's at least there was a colony on Delavan Lake. I knew somebody who went there to visit the 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 furry lady, mm-hmm. and furry lady? Um, it yeah. was somebody who oh, was a friend of her mother's, and 
they just called her auntie. There you go, the auntie connection. These guys call me auntie, by the way, for <laughs> listeners who aren't sure. But this lady had... Um, well, you're my, not furry, my, so don't worry about that. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> this lady would bake cookies, and she'd be holding she'd be holding the plate of cookies. And, and my friend, who was a little girl at the time, remembers looking down and seeing her bare feet that were covered like a dog or, or a, a wolf foot with, with fur or a hobbit. Yeah, that's just what, what it looked like. And this was a little-known area where a bunch of uh, retired circus people had um, bought cottages together and were very, very reclusive. So, you know, I can see that that could have, again, you know, be the basis for some of these legends. Yeah, we have one not too far from where I live down in Monroe, Michigan. Apparently there's an island down there where uh, the legend goes that there was a colony of melon heads that lived lived on that island, and if you went out there from time to time, you would see them or something like that. I don't know specifically where the island is at. Um, well, there's Dog Lady Island right there. Are you yeah, thinking of Dog Lady Island? I because think that there might was, be it, because I was yeah. just down there literally about an hour and a half ago. I was just down there right before we went on the interview. I have Visiting a the Dog a, Lady. Hmm. Well, you, guys, I have a, you guys have your stories about things you guys were told or someone told you you saw or somebody saw. Now, in town here... When I was growing up, there was a family of cannibals. Now these Ew. people were they were they were chicken farmers that lived the next town over. And they would they would come into town and they would buy stuff with their eggs and they would trade and they would barter, but they had money too because they would sell eggs. Mm-hmm. And they were just filthy, grimy, toothless, nasty-looking critters, greasy hair, and everybody believed they were cannibals. Oh, wow. <laughs> now, these guys came into the garage that I was working at. They had a little single-cylinder uh, tractor engine that they needed fixed, and they walked through the door, and I'm like, oh, Christ, the cannibals are here. <laughs> and and they're licking boss, their chop, were they licking their chops at you? No, they were just, yeah, they should have been. Well, at that time, I was thin as a rail and drugged out, so probably, I'm probably not merely a morsel at that point. Now I'm quite the meal, but... <laughs> But they came in, and I was like, oh, my God. And my boss looks at me and goes, they're not cannibals. They're just filthy. There you go. And I'm like, oh. So I had to go around and tell everybody that I knew about that we all knew the story of, you know, these are the cannibals. And I, and I ended up bringing them to the, the chicken farm, the people that thought they were cannibals. And we started getting fresh eggs from them. But uh, we were told they were cannibals. <laughs> okay. Just, just people with poor hygiene. Extremely poor hygiene. <laughs> Yeah, maybe maybe some inbreeding. Who knows? Inbreeding does not do any family good. So no. Well, yes, if my family there are tree reasons, is a reef. There are prohibi- prohibitions. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right, Linda. We've had you on here for about an hour now. I'm sure we've talked your ear off to death. So uh, plug your book. Plug people can find you. Anything you want to put out there, go right ahead. Oh, thank you. Yeah, well, American Monsters, A History of Monster Lore, Legends, and Sightings in America is available on just about, um, it should be in your bookstores, it should be on any online bookstores, um, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the others. And you can go to lindagodfrey.com and go to the About page and find a list of my books with some clickable links. You can find my blog there. And um, actually, just you guys might be interested. I just wrote about the giant skeletons of Delavan Lake. I just posted that blog mm-hmm. recently. If you're into the Native American stuff, this is Absolutely. pretty interesting stuff. Because you've got nine foot skeletons with double rows of teeth, bashed in skulls. In For real? Place. Yeah, very. Yeah, I. This is something that I've been researching for probably ten, twelve years, and uh, 
it's kind of confusing, but it really, people have tried to claim they weren't there and it didn't happen, but, you know, I, I know differently. So that's, that's there. But you can re- go back and read my blog. Other investigations that I've been working on recently are in there. Um, and then I also actually have a fantasy novel called God Johnson, The Unforgiven Diary, which is, again, fantasy. It's not nonfiction <laughs> like my other books. This is, this is this is stuff that I actually made. It has no werewolves in it, no Bigfoot, but it does have sphinxes and uh, lesser divinities, and it's sort of humorous. It's where I just kind of had fun and and um, let myself be me. And you can find and it's available in ebook now. I will be issuing some uh, printed copies within a few weeks, I think. But you can get it. You can download it on Kindle um, right now or, or Nook. And, and you can see the links to that and read more about it, too. But if you like fantasy fiction at all and, and you like my writing at all, um, you, you might really enjoy it. It's set in Madison, Wisconsin. Cool. And I, I think that's a lot of fun. Yeah. So, but And Lin, lindagodfrey.com is the locus of, of everything. You can find it all there. Do you have anything in the works for what's coming up next? Or do you have any plans to, uh, you know, what, what's, what's the next step, step for you? Well, I actually am working on the sequel to God Johnson. Um, so that's coming along. I've got another book proposal in with Tarcher Penguin that I was kind of they're batting forth between my agent and, and the editors, and we'll see if that one happens. And um, I'm really thinking about um, expanding on this my collection of the the large quadrupedal weird dog stories because I've got a lot that never made it into my other books because they didn't really fit the dog man mold. I was never sure exactly what they were, but when you start getting a large um, number of these things, you start really wondering. It. And um, I had another one just last night. Here's the thing: 22 years after I did the Beast of Bray Road, I'm still getting reports between usually between one and five a week of wow. different things. Well, it's a real thing. Why wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know. Yep. Um, but of all sorts of things, not just dogmen, but um, uh, the quadrupedal um, animals, um, the birdmen, the, the Bigfoot, plenty of Bigfoot ones. So I get a sense when I read American Monsters that there was a lot of stuff that got left out of here. Is there a yeah. possibility of a sequel to this book coming out sometime down the road? Whew, I don't know. <laughs> I have to ask my ask my. I mean, uh, editing this must have yeah. been a pain. So yeah, yeah, it was it was really hard to pick and choose what to go in and 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 what to leave out, and and of course, um, I've I've amassed quite a few things since just since uh, I sent it to the publisher, you know, because the, the publisher had it the better part of a year, too. So it's been um, really interesting to see what's come in since then. And I've been getting uh, new big bird sightings hand over fist. So that's really fun, too. I would yeah, imagine... You need another book. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine now that this is out and people are buying it and you're getting exposure that... It's yep. only going to get worse. You know, you're only going to yes. get more. It's going to get worse. <laughs> it's going to get worse. Sometimes, sometimes it feels that way. It's like, ah, what do I do with this? And I'm not the best, world's best filer, you know, I have to admit. And uh, so I've just got stacks and stacks of files, and some aren't labeled. But every once in a while, I'll open one up and go, oh, yeah, I forgot about this file. And there's, you know, things that uh, things that I should have put in um, that I just – you know, it's just because it's it's just me. I have no minions. I have no so have no, no associates. <laughs> I, I I would love I'd love to have a minion, you know, someday. But but uh, it's it's just just little old me here. So 
All right, Linda, we're, we're going to let you go. As always, thank you very much for coming on the show. Usually people pleasure. will send me books or I'll bug editors to get books. This one, I'm, I'm proud to say that I actually went out and bought this book because I wanted you to get the sale and I really enjoyed reading it. It's going to – it will fit right in with the rest of my books that I've got from you up on the shelf up here. Um, I loved it. It was great. I love the amount of stories you have in here. I love the variety of stories you have in here. And it was nice to see you stretch your legs, for lack of a better term, um, and branch out into other different things with such a vast variety. I really enjoyed reading it, and I Thank highly you. recommend that our listeners out there go out and pick up a copy because it's not very expensive either. Um, it's a great bathroom reader, for lack of a better term. It's <laughs> something that you can sit down if you're sitting somewhere like the DMV or if you're just, you know, you don't have to. You just went time. from the toilet to the DMV. They're pretty much the same. <laughs> exactly. Um <laughs> But, I mean, the stuff is in here. It's it's very bite-sized. You, you can sit down and read a couple of chapters in it and pick it up later and pick up where you left off. It's I not like an overwhelming. I like chapters myself. Yeah, yeah. I'm a best kind. person. It's nice. So um, thank you again for coming on here. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciated it. Thank it you, fun. Linda. Always fun talking to you guys. Thank you. And that was Auntie Linda. <laughs> Yay! And she doesn't have hypertrichosis. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, it was. Yeah, that was one of the ones that we've been setting up for a while. It's funny. Um, during this little hiatus, I have amounted a mass of books. There's companies that are now sending me books. Um, hold on here. What do I got? I've gotten Unidentified, the UFO Phenomena, and the Anderson Affair, a true story of close encounters of the fourth kind. Uh, Adam Gorightly, who we're going to have on pretty soon, has sent me a stack of books. All of these people have sent me books. And um, Robert Schneck's new book's out, which I posted up on the Facebook page. He's going to be back on here again very soon. That book looks awesome. Mm. Um, so, yeah, now that it's like, all right, I'm going to take a break. All of a sudden, all this stuff for the show starts flowing in. But – um. Yeah, we took a break. Um, the reason why I'm going to explain to everybody is the show got to a point where it was just feeling like – I'll be honest about it. Anybody who used to listen to old Erie Radio back in the day, right as they were starting to die out, mm -hmm. that was what it was starting to feel like to me. It was kind of like – I mean we were a dick joke away or a fart <laughs> joke away from becoming what Erie Radio was turning into. And I mean I'm right. Am I right or not? I, I'm not going to argue that. <laughs> And I think me and you were both just getting burned out and it got to a point where it was like, we got to put up a show about what? I don't know. We just got to do a show. And I did never want to get that. And we started, I felt that we really started drifting away every once in a while. A fun screw around show is okay, but we were really getting away. I felt from what we originally wanted to do, which was like this show tonight. We wanted to cover things in a different way. And the other thing is just sitting down to edit these shows um, trying to put stuff together, trying to get interviews, plus the job that I work. My hours are crazy right now. I just said, you know what, I, I got to stop. and We got to kind of reevaluate what we're doing. Even now, I don't know quite how often we're going to release a show because I really don't want to release a show 
all the time unless we can put something meaningful out. And right. that takes so work. At least so just to release a show. Yeah. I mean, every once in a while, we can, I, yes, we will still have some funny episodes. We'll probably still do some funny ramble casts from time to time. But I don't want to do that every week where I don't want to be hunting for guests every show. Just, just to hunt them down and put the stress of trying to get them. Fortunately, we have a few really cool episodes that are very much in the works and very much in the pipe that won't be that hard for me to put back, put together and get people on the show. Uh, some of them science, some of them weird. Uh, again, Adam, you know, he, he's coming back. Rob's coming back, Robert Schneck, uh, all that Sticky stuff. Schneck. Yeah. So that's basically what's been going on. Um, thank you to everybody for the donations because uh, it seemed like as soon as we said, I'm taking a break, I'm gonna, we're going to be gone for a little while. A flood of donations came in. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was like, thank you so it worked <laughs> <laughs> yeah our plan worked um which was thank you very much because that stuff all goes towards the show it really does we do not use it for beer money or, or fago pop money or whatever um thank you des um thank you duffy thank you brian thank you everybody who donated at the moment i, I might be forgetting one or two people because i'm doing this off the top of my head uh, so aside from that that, you know, during my break, I went out and joined the Michigan Moped Militia. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> the Michigan a, Moped Militia. I put a kid on that bitch. There's only like one person out there that's going to get this joke right now. <laughs> uh, go on shot. go on YouTube and uh, do a search for Michigan Moped Militia or Mafia. I, I, can, I will do that. And, uh, and there's a song called Put a Kid on That Bitch. And it's all about this like biker gang of moped. You'll see. It's It's retarded. But there's one person out there that's definitely going to get the joke. Wow, that's so. great. <laughs> what did you do during the, the, the off time? Oh, apparently, Rogan screwed around. Uh, Actually, I, I did a lot of stuff, background work on the show. I was editing new buffers and setting up interviews. I went back to split shift, and I actually get like seven to eight hours of sleep a night now. Good for you. Good no, for not you. really, because it's driving me nuts. Really? Yeah, dude. I've, I've been in I, – dude, I don't know how to deal with day walkers. <laughs> I don't. I've been doing the job I'm doing now. Now I go into work at like 1230 in the morning, 1 o'clock in the morning, and I get off at around noon. They they messed my my shift up completely because school's back in session. Right. And I deliver to schools. Um, sleep for me is really, really weird. It's like four hours here, three hours there, two hours there. No. Dude, I so. get up in the morning with the kids. I get everybody fed and cleaned up and dressed and off to school. I'm in the shop by quarter to nine. I'm out at 10 after, tw- 10 after 12. Come home, get my littlest off off the bus. Feed her, do some errands and chores, go back into work at 630. Dude, and I'm home. I'm out of work at 1130. Oh, wow. I'm glad you told me that so I don't call you at 2 o'clock in the morning when I'm out on the road like I used to. I'm still awake some nights, <laughs> but it's really weird. Yeah, this is what we've been doing behind the scenes, folks. The Facebook page has been hopping. That never slowed down at all. Yeah, right. We got new members to the Facebook page. You can look us up on Facebook with Project Archivist. Um, emails and stuff kept coming in. The Twitter page, I've kept the Twitter page popping pretty well. We got the weirdest followers on Twitter. It's good, though. Uh, well, we've but got – they're ours. The, That's the thing. They're ours. There's some strange people that follow us on Twitter. Like, there's a financial institution that's following us. I don't know why, but lots of science fiction authors are following us. That's good news. It is, but it's really weird. It's it's some of the people. You know, you know who's really weird? I mean, like legitimately weird. 
like mm. a different level of weird. Joey Herbs, man, that cat is weird. <laughs> He's going to laugh when he hears that. He is a weird dude. I mean, he posts some of the strangest shit. Yes. And I'm like, wait a minute. You know this is fake, right? And I'm like, I know why he's doing it. He's doing it to an illicit, illicit reaction. I think he's just screwing with people. I'm like, so. yeah, okay, I could be down with Then he'll post something that he believes in, and I'm like, oh, dude, you're still weird, man. I like you. <laughs> he almost, I almost recorded a solo episode with him. Um, That's funny. And I may still. I was... I don't know how to do it, though. I want to do an episode about how these people are freaking out at fast food restaurants. This trend of people. Yeah, just what is up with that? The woman that went Super Saiyan, who she said, I will go Super Saiyan on don't you. Don't make me sue my final form. Yeah. And I almost did a show with it. I might. I got a couple of more solo shows coming up, too, by the way. I'm just putting you on notice that I might record a couple yeah, of no shows. No problem, Hollywood. Shut up. <laughs> but um, I think that's it. Um. I can't think of any. Oh, yeah. The number that we give out in our promo for the contact the show, Lobo's number number no longer works in there. And I'm too lazy to go back and edit it out. <laughs> I don't want to go back and order, edit, uh, record another buffer with all that junk into it. So I might modify that buffer. But no one ever called you anyways. I got calls in the beginning and then people just stopped calling. I don't know if people were afraid. I, you know, I don't I don't know. I used to be afraid to put anything about me out there, but now no one's contacting you or anything about it. So. I know. So what the hell? I mean, what's the difference? Yeah, what's the point? You know, I mean, here, here's a phone number to contact one of us and, and do whatever. And nobody ever called you on it. So well, I got a couple of calls. I mean, I got Bad Hammer called me through that. Yeah. And then Raj called me through that, but I ended up giving Raj my other phone number. Nobody even calls the voice message on the show anymore. No. This is where Shar calls and leaves a 25 minute long message. <laughs> yeah, right. We love you, Shar. Get drunk uh, first, Shar. One more thing, and then we're done. Uh, congratulations to Lisa, sometimes yes. show contributor, uh, Project Archivist family member. She spit out another puppy. Yes, she I'll put it that way. She spit out another, another puppy. puppy. Yes. She, she helped <laughs> usher in a new human life, and yes. you called it spitting out a puppy. Yes, she spit out a puppy. Wow. <laughs> no, really, trained. We love you, Lisa. Do well. She had a little bit of some complications, but she's home yeah. and she's good now, and everything's good. Um, but I think that's it. And, uh, we'll be talking to you guys again soon. I'm not sure how quickly the next episode will come out. They are going to slow down a little bit, but we're not going anywhere. So just let everybody know, you know, <laughs> um, that's it. This yeah, is stop religion. texting me. <laughs> Who me? No oh, people. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Everything's fine. Really? Everything's fine. We're not going anywhere. I just needed to chill out a little as I sit here and gobble down a giant bottle of monster energy drink. <sighs> All right, folks, this is Rojan. Peace out from the D. Over from Connecticut, I'm not a cannibal. Peace. Peace. But you do smell bad.